First Samuel chapter 8 this evening, Misguided Demands. It's helpful to remember that hell is threatened by a Christian's sound motives. When our motivation is to obey the Lord because we know him, we love him, we know of his love for us, regardless of how weak we may be, that motivation to obey God threatens hell because hell recognizes that there is potential to go against the things of darkness, to bring light, to bring Christ into any situation. And even in King David, who was a man of war, who God did not want directly associated with his tabernacle, even David was honored by God for his motivation, even though he was forbidden. In Second Chronicles chapter 6, verse 8, the Lord answered David, But the Lord said to my father David, Whereas it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, you did well in that it was in your heart. And it is true, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, but so is the road to heaven. What is the motive? What do those, to whom do those intentions belong and where do they come from? And God was Israel's invisible king. But that wasn't enough for many of them. They wanted a human king. But their motive for the human king was misguided. It was wrong. And that's what we're going to discuss tonight when we look at verse 1. Now it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. Well, he wanted to delegate authority to his sons to raise them up. And what better way to train them to be leaders over the people than to put them in positions of leadership. Uh, it was a good idea. It says that... Uh, that he make his sons judge, uh, judge over Israel, delegating that authority it was a good plan, ruined by bad men, which so often is the case. In verse 2, the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Godly names, godless lives, they don't appear to be as bad as Eli's son. They're actually not even close, but they were corrupt. They could be bought. They were in ba Beersheba, which was so oh, 60 miles away from the home of Samuel and from Shiloh, which was once the place where the tabernacle of God was, far enough from Samuel. They were on Israel's southern frontier the end of their land. So much history, so much of their beloved history had taken place with the patriarchs there in Beersheba with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all three of them. Uh, the book of Genesis records these episodes of Abraham dealing with the Philistines and digging wells, of, and then Isaac coming and digging wells again there, and then Jacob leaving for Egypt from Beersheba a lot of history there. You would think that these two boys, Joel and Abijah, who were judges there on that southern frontier, would have said, you know, 
there's something special about this area that we've been given by our Father to administer justice. But it didn't register with them. What a danger to be born into a, a house of Samuel to grow up to be delegated authority by this man Samuel and to miss the whole point, to fall so far short of that opportunity. And that is a risk for all of us, young and old alike, to miss what God has blessed us with. We tend to want more or something else, and that's where we get in trouble. We begin to find that we have misguided demands placed on life, which life doesn't care anything about. What we must work to do is consider our blessings, consider what the Lord is doing with what we have, and then make it work for the king. It's a very simple formula. <laughs> Just carrying it out is very painful sometimes. They're very reward, rewarding also, but it's a lot of pain in this life. There's no way around it. Trying to make it work for the kingdom. Trying to find if my favorite tree falls, I will cut it up and make something out of it. Anything from furniture to firewood. But uh, this takes discipline. It takes faith. It takes a motive. And the motive is... To please the king. Verse 3. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. So again, they failed to realize the high calling of being born into the house of a man like Samuel. Or being born into the house of godly parents. Those who love the Lord. Now, Samuel, he's going to end up saying, fine, you know, I'm still going to be Samuel. We're coming to a verse where they're going to say, well, Samuel, you're old now. Well, we're going to find more action in his life as an old man than we did prior to these events. Samuel made it work. Instead of wringing his fingers, why, Lord, why me? Why did Joel and Abijah have to turn out this way? He continues to be Samuel. That's who he was. He remembered his godly mom. The high purpose of being in ministry was lost on their carnality. So often that is the case. Someone is given an opportunity. When you serve in the house of God, you're given an opportunity. Now, there have been those who think, I'm just doing the church a favor. <laughs> you're either serving the Lord or you're hurting yourself. There's really no other. There's nothing in between. Ultimately. And... Whatever that may bring, the good times and bad times, you're serving the Lord. And that's how I think we should always see it. That's how Samuel did. I mean, this is a man that ministered from the grave. Who else did that? So he appointed his sons to assist him. As I mentioned, at the end of their border in Beersheba, they trampled the opportunity to be high servants of Yahweh so that they could satisfy themselves and their twisted understandings. You know, what happens, Satan plays us before we even know what's going on sometimes, unless we adhere to the Lord, unless we stick to the Lord. But when we find ourselves loveless and judgmental, we are being set up. 
And if we find ourselves that way, we know what to do. We fight it. We don't cave into it. We don't feed it. They were a disastrous failure. Deuteronomy 16, verse 19. They knew this verse. At least they should have. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. Nor take a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. He compromised. Here is an interesting thought. That you shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. That's a good lesson for parents. Whenever parents play favoritism with their kids, they are creating big trouble. It is unrighteous. It is ungodly. It ain't cute to pick out one child. I like him more than all of you. Now, my mom couldn't help it with me. My, my siblings, they understood because I was adorable. <laughs> yeah, that is not true. They felt like it. That was their problem. I'm kidding. Of course, I'm kidding. My mom never played favorites. And uh, I think that there is a lot of wisdom in that one verse from Deuteronomy, you shall not pervert justice, you shall not show partiality. Well, like Eli before him, Samuel's sons were a disgrace, but they don't seem to have been, again, as bad as Eli's sons. Unlike Eli, Samuel is not said to have enabled his boys or tolerated it. It's just mentioned that this was a fact. We're not told what he did after that. Perhaps if Samuel is the historian here giving us the information, as I believe he is, most of it, the bulk of it, too painful and unnecessary. So it is omitted. And uh, the people will take this and jump at the chance to replace the leader of the nation with a king. Instead of having a man of God, a prophet over them, they want a king like everybody else. And that is where their demand is misguided. And uh, the king will not bring improvement. Verse 4, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And said to him, look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Do uh, now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. <laughs> Feels like I'm not in the mood to read. I just want to dance. <laughs> anyway, so the elders come. And, you know, what the elders said was law. We don't read about a lot of protests in these days. When the elders, tribal elders stood before whoever was the judge or the leader and they just made their decision, that was the law of the land. And so they come to Samuel, and they say, you're old. And that, that's a, just a nice greeting. But this broke his heart, no question. That here he was, the spiritual lamp of the nation. And it wasn't enough for them. He is going to be the spiritual lamp of the nation until his death. There's nothing anybody could do about that. And he's going to be around a while. And he's going to get a lot done. They did not, on the fair side of this, want to be stuck with his corrupt sons. So they said, listen, who's your successor going to be, Samuel? Once you die, your sons are in place to kind of take over. And we don't want them to lead over us. Now would be a good time for a king. One of the problems with that is Samuel already knows there are other factors hovering, hovering around this whole thing. 
But before we get to that, they come and they tell him about his corrupt sons, which was true. And that was very painful for him to have to listen uh, that his beloved sons were failing on the field of ministry. They were not just failing as administrators of justice. They were his kids. They were supposed to be righteous. They were supposed to set the example. People were supposed to say, just like your dad, such a man of God, you are. And that wasn't happening. And, of course, today we see that when a righteous parent, children fail, there are those Christians that pounce on them. It makes me want to beat them up sometimes. I mean, to kick another brother or sister when they're down and struggling just because they're kids. Listen, Hosea's family was a disaster, but he was God's man. God did not say to to Hosea, you can't raise your own family, keep your wife where she's supposed to. You're not a prophet. In fact, he called him to be a prophet. Then there's Samuel. As I mentioned, God invested a lot into Samuel, so much so that when, when Samuel was dead... Saul goes to the witch at Endor and says, bring up Samuel. And he comes up. God allowed that. God said, where I can't rule, I'll overrule. You're not running this show, you witch. I'm running it. And so Samuel (laughs) comes and ministers from the grave. And uh, as for their motives that he already knew about, Samuel Samuel understood the Jews were supposed to be a distinct people, like Christians. They were supposed to be separated. We're not supposed to be like everybody else. There's supposed to be something about us that's very different. Some of you have heard this in the workplace or the neighborhood or wherever you go from unbelievers. You're not like us. You're not like everybody. There's something about you. Or I knew it when you say, I'm a Christian. I knew it. And that's how it's supposed to be. There's nothing wrong with that. Leviticus 20, verse 26, And you shall be holy to me, for I, Yahweh, am holy, and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, What do you do more than others? Oh, wow, man, how convicting is that? What, what makes me different? Well, here's what Samuel knew what was also going on behind the scenes. Scenes. 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 12, he brings this up later. He says, And when you saw Nahash, king of the Amorites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us. When Yahweh was God, your king. Quote, unquote. Samuel knew what was going on, but he is such a man of grace and grit at the same time that he withholds these things. Instead of slashing them with it, he holds, he restrains himself, and he just tries to minister to them and reason with them. There was the Ammonite king threatening them. Threats were nothing new to them. They just dealt with the Philistines. And Samuel led the charge called thunder. But that didn't mean anything because they had other ambitions. Their demands were misguided because they wanted to impress The pagans. Well, don't we see churches do that? Don't we see churches ask the world permission to be intelligent? To try to somehow blend in the evolution of the species with the Genesis record? And uh, many other such things. You know, let's go to the university. Let's get accredited. Let's, Let's prove that we're smart too, see? Instead of saying, we don't care what you think against Christ 
except to say, we want you to love him like we do. And as for me and my house, we shall serve the Lord and not cave in. Uh, we watch, well, verse, verse 6, almost went political, caught myself. <laughs> verse 6, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to Yahweh. He's just a messenger of God, and he knew it. He's a minister of Christ, a creator. And it broke his heart. Not only the thing about his sons, yes, that too, but Samuel took this personally. He felt he failed in ministry. He had such a vision for the people that he would create, you know, or at least be part of the founding of the sons of the prophets, the school of the prophets. And his sons would be godly men. And all of that was falling down around him. And he still had to press forward. And But the day now comes and they, 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 they're not honest with him. He knows that it's Nahash, the king. They, they're impressed by him. And they want one of those too. And they come up with this excuse. Well, you know, we're worried about you. You're old. You, there's no successor. Your kids are no good. We should have a king. Now, this was not new to their understanding as a people. It was baked into their law. Moses had given some. There was anticipation in the prophets of the king eventually coming. Even Hannah prayed about the blessings of God. Maybe I'll get to that later. Uh, but uh, this was not new. But the, the motives were wrong, misguided. And God is going to honor them. They didn't need a king. Yahweh was their king's. No officials except those who spoke the messages of Yahweh. No code of laws except those given by Yahweh. That was supposed to be enough for them. We see it again in the church. We see those who say, the Bible's not enough for me to live my life. It's not enough of an authority. I need the Bible plus something else to help me uh, understand how I'm supposed to live. I don't agree with that. I think the Bible's got all the answers as to how we are supposed to conduct ourselves morally and spiritually in this life. Now, it does not give me directions on how to maybe program a VCR. Do they even make VCRs anymore? I, I've just lost, I don't even, I don't want any more technology. I'm, I'm done. Uh, anyhow, even Gideon knew better and wanted nothing to do with a monarchy. Judges chapter 8, then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your sons and your grandson also, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. Yahweh shall rule over you. So Gideon is saying, Yahweh's king, and that's enough. These people at this time in Samuel's day, they knew this. It was there in their scriptures. But it didn't matter. So Samuel prayed to the Lord here in verse 6. He steered a course to heaven's harbor. When things were hurting him, that's where he went. He got down on his knees. The refuge of broken hearts where wrecked lives go and those who are heavy laden. I don't know. You know, you go and pray to the Lord when something's really pressing on you. And even though you don't get your answer or your will done or the relief, you still find relief. It still strengthens us to keep moving forward in Christ. Or you become an apostate 
demonstrating that you probably never really did care about what the Lord thought to begin with. True believers know where to take their crushed hearts, and this is a picture of what's going on here. All of his dreams splintered and ruined and laying before him, and he goes to God. Paul said it this way, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And then he continued, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. <laughs> yeah, that's what he said from jail. By this time in Paul's life, he had already been persecuted several times. I mean, how humiliating to be let down in a basket out of Damascus to avoid capture and death. But he did. And in many other things he suffered. And so when he writes this, we say, you know, this is worth listening to. It's coming from a man who's doing it. And he did it to the end. To the day that they lightly beheaded him. This is how he lived. He said, don't worry about anything. That's not easy to do. But it is a motivation of the saints. It is a motive that we have. And no one else is supposed to have it except those who come to Christ, those who are motivated to trust Christ and not be worried because of Christ and keep moving forward, which Paul did because he had a lot of life left in him after he wrote to the Philippians. He says in everything, in prayer and supplication, don't forget gratitude, thanksgiving. Who likes an ingrate? Little children by nature are usually on, they have to be taught to be grateful. Uh, again, you can sit up with them all night and, they, and when they're sick and in the morning they're not going to, you know, let me bring you some coffee or tea or whatever it is you drink, Mom. And you stayed up with me all night. My mom used to say, you're going to miss me when I'm gone. And she said it in a very humorous way and we took it that way. But, oh man, I don't know how many years it's been, uh, over almost 35 or so and still miss my mom and my dad. So, we learn to start paying attention as we get older and being grateful for things and thinking through it and not just taking things for granted as though we are owed these things. Maybe we look at someone else who has them and we think because they have them, we're owed them too. May we stay focused on the main things. He says the peace of God, Paul's Paul does, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. Yeah, it does, because that peace does not come in as the world would like it to. Remember in that Philip, uh, I almost said Filipino, (laughs) the Philippian jail, his back still sore and bleeding, and he and Silas are singing praises to the Lord. Well, Samuel He worked so hard to not be like Eli, to not have his boys turn out that way, and look what happens. Who knows? Maybe at some point his boys corrected themselves. Verse 7, And Yahweh said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. I'm not so sure Samuel expected this answer. Heed the voice of the people on this matter, of course. I think he was hoping God would say, Samuel, go back and you tell these people. And he doesn't do that. Now, God is not saying that the people are correct and they know best 
And so we should do as they're asking us to do. What God is saying is the people have rejected him, and now this is going to be the best course of action based on that. This is how we're going to handle it. But again, I know I read this this verse from Jeremiah often enough. It's good to remember. Jeremiah says, Oh, Yahweh, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. Man can't govern himself properly without you. That's what he is saying, Jeremiah 10, 23. Psalm 37, verse 23, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. These were written by real people who suffered real things. We talked about the suffering of Paul. I mean, it's a a debate. Who suffered more, Jeremiah or, or Paul? I think Jeremiah. But it's not a competition. But I think Jeremiah, no, okay. I mean, you just read these stories of these men, and you just, my goodness, I, where did they get the metal to be the kind of heroes of the faith that they were? Well, they got it from God. And so the kingdom of heaven is based on a divine monarchy. Want men, pardon me. God wanted men to be under his authority. That's okay, when Jesus comes, he speaks about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. It is a kingdom. We have a king, and he is to rule. Uh, Samuel, uh, probably ready to step down and be subordinate to the king. He says, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. Again, in verse 7. So, Samuel's sorrow is shared by God. God is saying, I'm I'm a fellow sufferer sufferer with you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. I feel it. I know what rejection is, and this is what it looks like. You know, Moses was actually, uh, he was their king, but not in title in, in one sense. He, he did rule over the people, Deuteronomy 33, 5. And he was king in Jeshurim, that's, is the Jew, amongst the Jews, a pet name for them. When the leaders of the people were gathered, all the tribes of Israel together. So... They had this man, Moses, who was a priest, because Moses, of course, he was Aaron's brother. And he was a prophet. And in that sense, he was a king and a type of Christ. And this was in their rich history. And you would like for them to have gone to their scriptures and say, you know, we had a man that was like a king over us, even though God is our king. We had a man like Moses. And the thing about Moses is he loved God. He did what God told him to do. And God told him a lot. Built the nation through him. Had a special relationship with him. Well, don't we have something like this with Samuel? See, that's what a, a person of, that, that was, is grateful and, and looks around and is sensitive to what God is doing and how they would think. These people never looked up. They just looked over at Nahash the Amorite king and all the other problems and things that were going on. And they, we want a king like the pagans. We want a system of government like those who don't have our God. Again, they knew a king was coming one day, but it should not have happened like this. Here's the prayer of Samuel's mother. The adversaries of Yahweh shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. Yahweh will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. 
And so having a king, nothing in itself wrong with it, just how they're going about it. Verse 8, according to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. The people were not loyal. They were fickle. They were fickle because of their feelings. And feelings are fickle. They, they can't make up their mind who to be loyal to. Uh, this, uh, I think, again, all would have been avoidable had they just knew the word. But if I ask myself, if, I, if I'm talking to myself, which I try not to do, if, if what has allowed you to make it this far in Christ with all the setbacks, with all of the anticipation of God doing so many wonderful things in ministry and then not it not turning out as you thought, what is it that has kept you? And it is the word of God. It is knowing what God's saints have been through, what they have done, how to respond. It is defaulting to your training. Training is so important. And the way we train as Christians is through our devotional time, through serving, through fellowship, and through time with the Lord. And I don't know if I can find it. I sent to one of my pastor friends a verse that I felt was a blessing to me and a blessing to him. I might have read it. Um, Psalm, 80, uh, Psalm 119, verse 82. My eyes fell for searching your word, saying, when will you comfort me? I'm looking that the, the psalmist, again, likely David, is saying, I'm searching the life of Samuel and I'm searching the life of Moses and Joshua and all these promises. When are you going to get me out of this problem? This horrible thing. Then verse 92. Unless your law had been my delight, I would then have perished in my affliction. You've, You've got to suffer in Christ just a little bit to begin to understand what these things mean. You have to be able to go to the scriptures and stay with Christ through thick and thin to get the beauty of the, the meaning of these things. Only the scriptures can tell it to us like this. And that's why Samuel is going to God. That's why he was such a man of the word. First Samuel chapter 7, the victory over the Philistines. That's the chapter we, we considered that victory. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel saying, If you return to Yahweh with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods, the Asherahs from among you, and prepare your hearts for Yahweh and serve him only. He will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. And they they did that. And they were delivered. And then a short time later, here comes the Amorites. And now they don't want to go through this again. Verse 9. Now therefore, God's still speaking to him. Heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. God says, I want this on record. I told you so. (laughs) That's what is happening here. Now, if God wanted his spiritual authority to rule as a civil authority, he would have just made Samuel king. But he doesn't want to do it that way. He wants to keep the spiritual authority not isolated or completely separate. But he doesn't want them to mix too much. And the church... needs to stay focused on spiritual things and not get entangled 
I mean, we have to be concerned about civil things, but not entangled in them. Uh, well, as prophets of God, as those who minister, this, we're not to lord over the flock. The kings were not to lord over the people. Verse 10, so Samuel told all the words of Yahweh to the people who asked him for a king. I wonder if he told them. He says, you know, my heart was broken when you came to me with this. And I went to God and God says, my heart's broken with you, Samuel. But it's not you they're rejecting. It's me. It's personal. I wonder if he told them that. Well, the way they respond in this eighth chapter, it wouldn't have mattered. Their minds were made up and they would not turn away. It was nothing. They were so stiff-necked at this point. But now he's going to give them the demands and the burdens of a monarchy. Yeah, because the people did not stop to think, well, how did we get out of Egypt? Well, through a prophet, a man of God. Well, how did we survive in the wilderness? Without a king, it was through men of God. Well, how do we cross over Jordan? Oh, it was Joshua, that man of God. How do we defeat Jericho and then the giants and all the other things? They pass right by these things. And that is, um, that spiritual insensitivity is what creates a shallow believer. The deeper believers are sensitive to these things. Uh, to they, we think about them and, and we, we praise the Lord. You know, thinking and thanking are directly related. So, verse 11. And he said, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be his horsemen. And some will run before his chariots. Now, here in this section, I'm not going to take it all together. And I'll try to get it when we as we come across it. But the word take is said, mentioned six times in verse 11 and then 13 through 17. Take, 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 take. That's what the king is going to do to you. He's warning them. Absalom, the way he launched his rebellion against his father is he took a chariot and had men run before him. Second Samuel 15, after this it happened that Absalom provided himself with chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. Well, this is what Samuel, uh, Samuel is saying. He's going to appoint men uh, for his own chariots to run before him. Spiritually, it has a lot of meaning. Outside of that, it really doesn't mean much. But when you look at it spiritually, you see that God is totally on top of these things. And as always, when we read it, we say to ourselves, who am I in this picture? Just in this quote from 2 Samuel, am I an Absalom? That snake. And that's what he was. And I can't wait to read about him and how Joab skews him. <laughs> that might be a bit much. It's not very Christian, but... But you are glad to see justice administered. You rejoice when justice is administered and relief is brought to the righteous. And you look at the life of Absalom. You say, what happened to that kid? Couldn't he just look around and, and just... Did the Bible mean anything to him? Or was he so familiar with it? Did he hear about it all the time to the point where it just, just bounced off of him and just no longer registered? How do, you, how do you fight that? Prayer. Talking to God. The Bible to you becomes just, you know, boring or you can't trust it because, as I read from Psalm 119, verses 82 and 92, when you search the Scriptures and you don't find relief, 
You have to remember that it is the search of the scripture that will hold you strong in the face of those things that fly against you. In verse 12, he will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties, will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest and some to make his weapons for war and equip for his chariots. How does Samuel know all this? He looked at the other kings, the, the pagan kings, what they were doing. He knew what they were doing. He is saying here he's going to want a standing army. If you get a king, he's going to have a standing army and no longer rallying the farmers to war. And that's going to take food and supplies to support that army. Verse 13, he will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers, palace servants. Verse 14, and he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, your olive groves, and give them to his servants. Uh, eminent domain is what that amounts to. He's going to say, I need this field, and he will probably pay them for it, and, but still, he's going to, he's going to take it. Um, they would, as a people, make habit out of giving better things to their king than to God. Now, I think there's a lot to think about in that for us. Malachi comes along after they have no more kings, they're a conquered people. And he writes this in Malachi chapter 1. And of course, we all know if you're from Brooklyn, it's Malachi, not Malachi. But, and when you offer, a, he, so Malachi is, is, he calls them out. He says, You guys are messing with God and this fake religion that you're bringing to him. And so he says, And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says Yahweh of hosts? So God says, Malachi, go tell the people, I see what you're doing. You're giving me your hand-me-downs. You're giving me things that are defective, that you don't want. And you're looking for the reward of giving them. Because you really don't have faith. You're just playing this whole ritual game. Go try that with your governor, because they don't have a king. Go try that with him and see what he does to you. Yeah, he'll, he'll, he will, might kill you for daring to insult him that way. Yes, you come to God this way with a straight face nonetheless. You go home and you boast that you went down and you sacrificed at God's house. So do we as a people make habit, habit of giving better things to men than we give to God? See, these are the kind of thoughts that make us stronger. Even if we fail to, 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 to prevail over these temptations and defects, the motive of trying to fix it goes so much farther than if we just shrug our shoulders and say, yeah, who cares? And so may we take God more seriously than anyone else. Verse 15, He will take a tenth of your grain, and your vintage, and give it to his officers and servants. So this tenth of a tax demand placed on the people is in addition to the temple taxes of a tenth. So when you get a king, your taxes are going to instantly double. That's what he is he's telling them. It will cost them to maintain appearances. You want to act like the, the other nations, the Gentile kings? It's going to cost you. 
Verse verse 16, he will take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men, your donkeys, and put them to his work. And we're going to see this with David when Saul pretty much takes David. Verse 17, he will take a tenth of your sheep, and you will be his servants. They will never again be as free as they are at the time that Samuel was leading the nation. Tribal rule was demanding, but not as as much as a monarchy. Not nearly as much. Verse 18, And you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, and Yahweh will not hear you in that day. So there is a such thing as unanswered prayer, or should I say refused, rejected prayer. I mean, as Christians, we pray, and God does not grant a lot of our prayers. Uh, But it is not with the attitude that is being warned about here by Samuel. Um, In this case, God is saying, you're not going to get free from what you're bringing on yourselves because your motives are wrong. They are misguided, irreparable, and final, but all of this fell on deaf ears. Um, 1 Kings chapter 12 shows this coming true. This is when Solomon dies, Rehoboam becomes king, his son. And Rehoboam when the tribal elders came to him and said, Solomon taxed us to no end. Why is that? Because Solomon built everything. How do you finance that? With taxes. And Solomon had to have the best of everything. And when we get there and we talk about the Queen of Sheba being blown away and saying half of the story has not been told, we have to remember there's a lot of slave labor, a lot of taxes financing all these things that were so splendid. Well, when, he, when Solomon dies, their, their leaders come and they say to Rehoboam, his son, who is now the king, can you lighten the taxes a little bit? And he asked the elders, what do you think I should do? And they said, lighten the taxes a little bit. And you, you're going to win these guys. And then he asked his high school buddies, who were about as smart, smart as oh, a wet sack of mice. And he asked them, what should I do? And they said, you need to shut these guys down and shut them up. Tell them who the king is. And so, of course, Rehoboam says, you think my father was tough? You know, I'm going to scourge you. And, is going to, and, and so he's just all this stuff. And what happened? They said, to your tents, O Israel, the nation was split. And Jeroboam becomes king of the of this northern kingdom. And so here, from 1 Kings chapter 12, your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the burdensome service of your father and his heavy yoke which he put on us, and we will serve you. But God said, I'm not going to hear you. No, the burden will not be lightened. You asked for a king, this is what you've gotten. We come along and we read it, and we're supposed to learn something from it, not to be stiff-necked and presumptuous. Be very careful. Keep our motives sound. They had no one to blame but themselves. And it seems to be, as a people, habit-forming. Because in the days of Christ, when they were cheering on his crucifixion to Pilate, and all the people answered and said, His blood be upon us and our children. The consequence of being stiff-necked or stubborn is a consequence. You want to be stubborn playing checkers, have at it. But you want to be stubborn in the things of the Spirit and the things of life. As believers, uh, very much... uh, you can still be a fool and a Christian at the same time if you're not careful. Proverbs 27, verse 22. 
Though you grind a fool in a mortar with a pestle along with crushed grain, yet his foolishness will not depart from him. You see, when you read the Proverbs, you're supposed to say, I don't want to be that guy. I am not that guy. Have any of you, I don't know what the girls did growing up. I spent all my time avoiding you. But as a boy, I mean, you would just, you'd see, a, you know, a, a sailor or, a, you know, an airman or a policeman. you say, that's me, that's me, before the other kid could say it. You just, that's who you wanted to be. Well, when you read the Proverbs and you read about the fool, do you say, that's me, that's me. I hope not. It's because God does not ask us when he says, don't be the fool. He's not making a demand that is overwhelming. And so when we read the Proverbs, we come to the fool. We must say, I, I, I'm not going to be that guy, Lord. Help me not be that person. Verse 19, nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, nope, we will have a king over us. Uh, I don't think they were smug. I just think they were firm. Their minds were made up had been for a long time a result of greener grasses on the other side for Israel. Verse 20, that we may also be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. How, how awful that we can be like the other nations. It's repeated. Why? Why would you want to be like them? Doesn't your faith mean anything? Or are you just playing this religious game? Well, I go to church because my parents take me to church. Well, I go to church because my wife goes to church. Or, you know, or I, I, you know, I'm a Christian now because everybody else around me is one. I've met those types. And then a person has got to ask themselves where they stand personally. And if so many other Christians have done it and are doing it and will do it, then what's the excuse of any of us? We don't have any. We get stronger by watching other Christians be Christians. Good times and bad times. Verse 20, and I already read verse 20. I wanted to comment on that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Wasn't God their warrior king already? Deuteronomy 1, verse 30. Yahweh, your God, who goes before you, he will fight for you according to all he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. How's that working out for you, Peter and John and Andrew? Those apostles that died violent deaths or suffered for their faith. They knew that God would go out and fight for them, but that also, at some point, they were going to die. Well, the apostles gave their blood in testimony that they saw the crucified, risen Christ. And that men don't die for such things willingly. Men don't die for known fantasies. They had to have seen him because they did not deny seeing him even at the point of death. There's no other religion like that. Nobody else. Men die, can die for something they believe that they've not seen, but they believe it. But the apostles saw it and still died. And all they had to do is say, you know what, I didn't see him rise again. But they couldn't. They could not turn away from that. Deuteronomy 20, verses 1 through 4, talk all about God. 
saying, when you go to the battlefield and you see the chariot, well, I should read it. When you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them. For Yahweh your God is with you, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And he goes on to talk about, he will fight for you and don't faint in their presence. Well, we have an election coming up. We're faced with the possibility of Satan winning the White House. You're either going to have faith and say, whatever happens, blessed be the name of the Lord. Or you fret. And it's still going to happen, whatever's going to happen. I like to trust God, no matter what happens, and adjust as things turn this way or that way. We saw that when wicked Obama got elected, twice. And thank God, there's no third term. But, I mean, a lot of Christians were devastated. God, I mean... I didn't lose any more hair because of it. So <laughs> things kind of stayed normal there. So you just trust God. And so now we have an opportunity. We have this opportunity to stand up and say, look, I don't know what's going to happen, except I know this, I'm going to still trust God. And look at that as an opportunity to preach the gospel that is not dependent upon outcome. It's depending, it dependent upon revelation. And God has revealed himself to me. I can't unknow him. I've met Jesus Christ in my heart. Nothing can take that away, hopefully. That's why the Christians went to the lions praising God, singing hymns. The lions couldn't take it away, even when they ate them. Verse 21, And Samuel heard all the words of the people, and he repeated them in the hearing of Yahweh. <laughs> Samuel said, Okay. I'm telling God. <laughs> he wasn't informing God, but he was telling him. Did you hear what they said? Of course he did. But I, have, I just got to tell you, I mean, there's something, there's relief in having a friend in God where you could tell him anything. This is what's bugging me. You can say, you can say to God in reverence, God, this is what's bugging me about you, that you won't answer my prayer right now. It's okay to say that. And then go off and do what he's told you to do. Otherwise, God becomes you know, disinterested in the burdens of our heart. I think when we get to heaven, we're going to find out how much our prayers mattered to God. How he heard every tear. And I think that's going to be one of the glorious things about heaven. Is how much we will realize God does care. And that his love means care. Even though here in this life, so much of it is veiled. Verse 22. I don't know if the, you younger Christians, I don't know if you're saying, what are you talking about? I'm trying to get you ready for days that are coming. When your faith is going to be tested over and over again. And if not through you, through those whom you love. And that no matter what happens, you will be serving the Lord and there's nothing hell can do about it. And that is the goal. Verse 22, so Yahweh said to Samuel, heed their voice and make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, every man go to his city. Beanheads. No, he didn't, he didn't say that, but he should have said it. <laughs> 
<laughs> I would have said it. Get the last singer in. <laughs> so, the monarchy was the people's choice. And now they were worthy to compare themselves with other nations. With the, with the Philistines and the Amorites. Now they were accredited amongst others. Now the world will receive us. Our king will can meet with their king. Instead of having this, you know, tribal leader dressed in overalls fresh out the field, we can have a guy with robes flowing. And so the church seeks to impress the world instead of beckoning the world to leave itself and join them. Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. So he's saying... Timothy, don't be ashamed that I'm in jail for Christ. There's no shame in this. There's glory in this. The world would see shame. You're a convict now, Paul. Yeah, but for what? For whom? He continues, he says, but share with me in the sufferings. What? Does that work? It absolutely does. I I I told a story. I had a friend when I was 17... And uh, he was a Navy recruiter, Mike. I, I wish I'd never lost touch with so many people. You meet so many people in life that are just nice people. Anyway, Mike was a Navy recruiter. And Mike wanted me to join the Navy. But I was already hooked on the Marines. Going back to Gomer Pyle, <laughs> who I hated. I hated Gomer Pyle. I loved Sergeant Carter so much. I wanted Sergeant Carter to kill Gomer. Even when I was a little kid, I said, well, could he just kill him? Anyway... Because he was just—he was a disgrace to the core. This is before we found out other things about Gomer. But anyway, so Mike would, you know, try to get me, and Mike said, "Rick, listen, you don't want to be one of those guys. They do everything different. They go to the bathroom at attention, and and he just all these things he was saying, and he was just actually selling the Marine Corps to me. I was like, I want to be that. I was that that crazy to like till after boot camp. I came out of that, but." It was too late. I was a slave to, slave to the man. My point is that, and so the poster, the poster the Marine Corps had up that really got me was, uh, we don't promise you a rose garden. The only thing they told me that was true. And so, so here when I read this about Timothy, but share with me in the sufferings, if you're in the spirit, it draws you in. So that's what I, I, I want to be able to be believer enough to suffer for Christ, if that's what's called for. And so Paul does not fluff it. God's got a purpose for your life. And it's to, you know, be a missionary to those who live in Maui. To eat as, as much, you know, oh no fish as you can. And just all these. No, he's just telling him, don't be ashamed of me. I'm in prison and I'm trying to get you to be one of me. Share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. And the power of God goes beyond this life. That's where the power is. Sometimes it seems like there's no power to serve God in this life. It's the next life. That's the one we, 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 we look to. That's the big one. Share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. And that's not what they wanted. They wanted to be like everybody else. And the Christian in the church must say, we're not like everybody else. We don't mean to sound rude. We're not uh, supermen or anything like that. But we're supposed to be different in our beliefs 
and we're not afraid to tell you. We don't share that view, regardless of what it costs me. So when Timothy would say to someone, no, I'm not going to show deference to Caesar because he's not a god to me. I think that is anathema. And the people would say to Timothy, you know, that kind of attitude is going to stop the gods from bringing rain. And our crops are going to suffer. And we're going to suffer. And it's going to be because of you Christians. You Christians are going to mess everything up. We're all going to suffer. And you say, well, you believe in a myth. That's not going to happen. You know, the icebergs aren't going to freeze or thaw. And we're all going to drown in ice water. That's not going to happen. But yet, you're making laws to make me... So we we live in the same kind of world. Nothing new under the sun. Samuel, this man of grace and grit, says, fine, you get yourself a king. But he doesn't have a bad attitude. In fact, when Saul becomes king, he really steps up to be the prophet to the king. But he doesn't take any nonsense from Saul either. At one point, he says, you know, Saul's going to kill me if he finds this out. Next, we meet Saul in chapter 9. The party is just starting. And too bad we don't go from Samuel to David. God wants us to look at a man like Saul and say, listen, there are people like this. They might not have as much power, but they, have, they are just as obnoxious. And may we not be like them. Let's pray. Our Father, a lesson on every page, as even has been said, you speak even between the lines. There's so much to learn, so much to do, so much to relearn, to reapply, that we could be better servants, not so self-centered, but Christ-centered. May you help us all with this over and over again. May it get us all home safely this evening. We ask you in Jesus' name, amen.